So I think when you become a parent, especially your, your children are your teachers. And uh, you start to realize the little mini events that happened over the course of your life that you never healed. Welcome to the School of Greatness. My name is Lewis Howes, a former pro athlete turned lifestyle entrepreneur. And each week we bring you an inspiring person or message to help you discover how to unlock your inner greatness. Thanks for spending some time with me today. Now let the class begin. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation. In this episode, we discuss topics that include sexual abuse and trauma that might be triggering to some audiences. Please be advised. What's been the thing that's held you back from yeah. your most peaceful, loving, calm self when the world happens? And I really look at mm. like when events happen in the world, if we are triggered by them and it really affects us in a big way and we clench up, there might be something there. There might be a wound or something we haven't healed yet. Yeah. What's the biggest thing you've had to work on to, to help that healing journey? Which is a journey. Yeah, I mean, so much. So I... Well, probably three years ago or so, I started realizing that I just had a lot of stored trauma and emotion in my body. And I was somebody that didn't even know, I didn't even know I had anxiety. I didn't think, I, I saw people with anxiety and depression, and I was like, well, I don't know what that's like. I don't know. That's not me. And then one day in therapy, I told my therapist, you know, sometimes I can't take a full breath. Mm. And, um, I started having some weird back pain in certain areas, and and uh, and then I, she's like, "Oh, I really want you to notice that and look at that." And then it would show up more and more and more. And I realized that no, I've had anxiety my whole life, but as a former athlete, I just didn't pay attention to it. I didn't pay attention to anything that could slow me down, or that could delay my greatness and whatever I was trying to accomplish. Come to find out I did have anxiety. So then you have to go into the anxiety and you have to f figure out where it is in your body and where it's coming from and what is it. And as I was you know, writing my last book, I started sharing a lot of stories about my life in an attempt to help other men feel like they're not alone. I didn't have anybody ever model vulnerability to me. Um, my dad was emotional. He was sensitive, he was kind, he was Italian, but he never like, showed me vulnerability. I didn't know the things that were causing him stress or anxiety. Um, and I didn't have anyone to talk to about the things that hurt me and caused me pain when I was young. And so as I wrote these things, and I wrote about these things, um, a, lot of, a lot of stuff came up for me in terms of, oh man, sexuality, mm -hmm. um, being 10 years old and finding porn for the first time. Um, before my body was ready and what that did to me in terms of the neural pathways that it carved in my brain and the comparison to feeling like, oh, I'll never measure up or I'll never be that thing that I saw when I was 10, um, to sexual situations that I was put in before I was ready. Um, and to even at, at 20 years old, having my first real sexual experience at my first time not being consensual, um, having that taken from me mm. in a way that I didn't realize until three years ago was a gross violation of boundaries because I didn't believe that men could get sexually mm. assaulted. Because what are we conditioned as men to believe? Like, if she wants sex, well, you better be ready. Mm -hmm. There was no talk about not being emotionally prepared. So all of those things were in my body, and I had no clue. I had no idea. And so over the last three years, as I've been healing, so much has been coming out. And learning that I, um, 
that I need to love myself enough to listen to the things that my body is saying, to the things that my, that my soul is saying, to the things that I need um, that I've never done before. So, oh, yeah, and, a lot, you know, and uh, a lot of other stuff. I think when you become a parent, especially your, your children are your teachers, and uh, you start to realize the little mini events that happened over the course of your life that you never healed as they play out in front of you with your children. So as an example, I learned that I, don't, I was never really played with. Nobody ever mm. got on their knees mm. and like looked at me and played with me and like there was no work. There was, no, there was just like just me and that adult because I didn't know why it was so hard for me to play with my kids for the first couple of years. Because that didn't happen to you. You didn't see that model. I, didn't, I had no idea what was wrong. I was mm-hmm. like, wait, why, why can't I get on the ground with my kids? Like, why am I always worried about what's happening elsewhere? Or my, on my phone. What, what is this thing? And I realized, oh my God, that's because it wasn't their fault. But nobody was really on the ground playing with me. And these things inevitably come up, especially when you're the dad of a little kid. Mm. Um, and two, two little kids at that. And then marriage, a lot of stuff comes up. I mean, you're, you're married, in a, What, 12 years married? 10 years? Uh, this is your, we just celebrated nine years. So this, oh. we're, we're on the journey to 10, 10 together for almost 12 now. Wow. But you know, you're in a loving, passionate, amazing relationship, and you know that that person is a mirror. And that person, if you're doing it right, I believe, will bring up all of the stuff mm-hmm. that you haven't looked at. That you haven't resolved yet, yeah. Or or resolved or, or looked, looked at. at yeah. Just It will just all come up inevitably, and it's not their job to fix, it's your job to fix. Mm-hmm. So I guess that's my answer to your question. Mm. If you could, uh, you know, I, I saw, me and Martha saw you a year, about a year ago in uh, Cabo as we were kind of a few months into our dating experience. And uh, we had talked with you and your wife. And you it was were a synchronistic It was crazy because we, we were sitting down for dinner and we're like, you did a post or something on Instagram that we both saw. And we were like, oh, it was such a beautiful thing that you were talking about. I think it was with your wife, your relationship. Or you guys were on a healing journey, something like that. Mm-hmm. And it's like, man, it's really beautiful. And then like 20 minutes later, you walked down in Cabo and we're like, Oh, what is happening? You're a powerful manifesto. <laughs> you know, um, and it was it was cool because then we had we hung out for a couple of days, a little bit here and there, talking about our experience and your experience. And at the time, it sounded like you guys had gone through some some darkness in the previous years, individually, and then not darkness, but some challenges in the relationship yeah. and the marriage, where you were questioning things and there was friction, and and now you're on a starting the healing journey. I'm curious, what is the the biggest lesson you've learned about marriage since starting that healing journey eight, ten years into marriage that you didn't do in the first few years of marriage? What I, what we, those first few years didn't do right is that we expected the other person to do the work for us. What work? Give me an example of what you expected her to do for you. So one of the things that Emily says is, that I love and I quote her all the time, is the greatest activism is self-activism. Um, and I've, my wife is a sage, so I just, you know, she's, uh, she's my muse in so many ways. And I was really struck by that. Because you can't, you can't really show up for anything in this life if you haven't done the work on yourself first. And when it came to me and Emily, early on there were expectations that maybe one of us had for the other. And when that wouldn't be met, or when something would happen, um, she would be upset or I would be upset. And so then you share it with another person and then you expect them to change. You share it with that your, you share, yeah, your partner. You share, you share it with yeah. your partner and then you expect them to change. But in reality, what has to change isn't just the behavior, one. It's your part in it. So a great example of this is there is this thing that happens when you're married and you have kids. 
And if there's any traditional gender role in the house, or whether, or even if both couples are working, uh, or if both people are working and you have kids, there is this thing that inev- inevitably happens, which is who's more tired? Mm. I'm more exhausted. Who's more tired? Yeah. There's dishes to be done. There's laundry to be done. Yes, toys to the be ki- picked up. Toys yeah. to be picked up. The kids have to go to sc- if they're going to school yeah. or whatever it is. Logistics and the travel. And there is a business in running a family, mm-hmm. right? And then you have your business outside of the family. But for many women who stay at home or who have given up their dreams or sacrificed to be able to stay at home and be with their kids, oftentimes men don't see the amount of work that goes in to just managing the household, Mm -hmm. just being the CEO of the Baldoni house and the kids. And... Oftentimes, um, some women, and I can use my wife as an example, um, don't always see the other side of it, which is the work and how hard it is for the man and all of the hours that we're putting in and all of the, you know, and being away from the family. And we had this conflict for a few years early on because I was like, you know, I was... the middle of my TV show was building a company. I was directing movies during the, during the hiatus. Like I wasn't taking a break. And when my, you had kids, when you when you first we started, had just, we just first started having kids. Yeah, yeah. And at the same time, I was really missing my kids and my wife and being at home. And yet I would get home and I was exhausted. And there was still stuff to be done. And there was mm. conversations to be had. And and you know we. Uh, she was tired and I was tired and inevitably like there's conversations like, well, okay, but I was out working all day and she's like, yeah, but I did 5,000 things today and we kept missing each other. Mm. We went to therapy about it. We talked about it and in doing our own work and unpacking for me masculinity and for me looking at the system itself, looking at, okay, what is it in me? What is, what is it about my socialization that makes me feel like, I have to not just be an actor on a TV show, but I have to also go build a business and go direct movies and go do this. Where is this drive for success, for being the best coming from? Why do I have to do all of it? Why do I then have to write books? Why do I have to do TED Talks? Why do I have to be such an overachiever that I have to be the best at whatever it is that I'm doing? And I have to have the most impact and heal the most people. Like, what is that? And I had to go into that thing mm-hmm. and ask myself, what's really going on? Where is this all coming from? And part of it was it was absolutely a trauma response for me. I absolutely wanted people to love me and to like mm-hmm. me. I wanted to be seen because I didn't feel seen when I was a kid. And the only place that I felt like I could be seen is if I was in the top of the mountain. If I had the money, if I had the cars, if I had the house, if I had all of it. That was where I would get respect and be seen and be valued and be loved. When in reality, where I was really seen and valued and loved was right at home. Mm-hmm. But my conditioning, my socialization, all of it was like, no, go, 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 go. Now, it's not to say it was all a trauma response, but a part of it was. And the other part of it was, I believe that's part of my work as a soul here on this earth, is to help people recognize their innate enoughness. And just like yours mm-hmm. is what yours is. Um, And then she had to do her own version of that. And what we found one day in a conversation was I, with a bleeding heart, in tears, told her how I didn't feel she was acknowledging the way that the system is hurting me too. Mm. Because all of these things that I'm doing out there that are paying the bills, all of all of the providing that I'm doing and the protecting is taking me away from my children. I don't get to be there as often as she gets to be there. I, 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 for the first four years, I experienced a lot of milestones via FaceTime. Mm-hmm. And nobody really talks about that. And for the first time, she had compassion for what it was like for me as a man to be walking through the world feeling like if I don't reach the top of that mountain, then I am not, en- then I'm not enough. Because I believe 
The way masculinity works is that it tells us that our worth is tied to our productivity. We stop being productive, we don't have value. Nobody wants us anymore. Mm -hmm. We won't be any good to our children or our wives or our friends. We won't be invited to places. We don't have money. We can't provide. What are we? That's why we're seeing so many men our age and older taking their lives. They don't have a job. They lose their job. Something happens. They don't feel like they have value. Boom, we're done. Because masculinity can be taken from them. And so she, she looked at me in tears, and I'm like, I would love the chance to stay at home. I'd love the chance to be able to like be a stay-at-home dad and be there with my kids. Mm-hmm. Now, being fully honest, when I've done it, it's, the, it's way harder than my job. <laughs> well, it's not your natural state. I am so much, yeah. I get so much more tired <laughs> doing that job getting on my knees and playing with my kids and mm-hmm. having conversations with a four-year-old all day long mm-hmm. than I do at the other job because there's a part of that other job that's also fulfilling something in my 100%, soul. yeah. And when she was able to see and understand that, it changed the dynamic. And when I was able to see and understand how hard her job really is, putting myself in her shoes, looking at me out in the world, having conversations with adults and having fame and all of this while... She's at home, and the world doesn't recognize what she's doing as valuable. The world doesn't congratulate mothers the way it congratulates fathers. Otherwise, mothers would be considered the top prospect for employers, but instead they're at the bottom. Who's the top? Fathers. Mm-hmm. A man who's a father of a child is a hireable man. We want that guy. But a woman who's a mother... Well, you don't want to hire her because, well, what happens when there's a doctor's appointment or the kid gets sick? Well, she's going to have to leave work. But we've conditioned our men to believe that, like, oh, well, a dad won't do that. A dad will stay committed to the job. We want the qualities that come from being a father. We don't want the responsibilities that come. So it was this combination of these two things that changed our entire relationship, and that happened Um, fairly early on. I did my own work, she did my own work, and then we came together and we shared honestly without needing to change the other person. And when we had empathy and compassion for each other, Mm. it blew the doors wide open. What would you say to the, if you could go back to yourself, obviously you don't want to change anything, but if you could go back to yourself the day before you got married and you could have a conversation from this standpoint right now, you, Mm. to that younger version of you, and you could only share three lessons of like, hey, these are three things I really hope you start doing from day one before the marriage begins. Knowing what you know now on how to create more harmony and peace and and connection and conversation and alignment in the marriage. Not that you've had a bad marriage, but I'm just saying to just eliminate some of the frictions. What would would those three, three pieces of advice be to your younger self before marriage? It would be, the first thing would be to do your own work, to really do your own work, to excavate and dig up the things that have happened to you because they are 100% influencing the way that you love. Mm-hmm. 100%. To, to really meditate on those things. Um, yep. It's not the other person's job to fix you. 100%. It's not the other person's job to heal you. It's the other person's job, as we talked about earlier, to hold space so that you feel safe enough to do that work on your own. And it's really hard when only one person does the work, as I know you know. Very hard. As we've talked about. Mm-hmm. And when both people do the work, it's amazing. It's, Emily and I, we keep saying it's getting better and better. We never imagined that we'd have a marriage like this with this much love and compassion and empathy and Mm. fun and joy and like safety. Because so many of us didn't get safety when we were kids. We don't know what safety really feels like. The world doesn't feel safe. So when you have that safety in a marriage, oh my Mm, God. It's beautiful. So um, doing your own work is number one. Two is um, loving the person the way that they want to be loved. Not the way that you want to be loved. That requires empathy and sensitivity. 
requires listening and being observant and thinking about what that person needs versus what you need. And that's not how we're raised. Mm -hmm. That's not what we see in the movies. That's not what most of us saw from our parents. The third thing that I would say to myself, enjoy it. Mm. Relationships, marriages, I believe when you do those first two things are meant to be enjoyed. Mm -hmm. Enjoy each other. Like, find time for fun. One of my favorite parts about my job is that I get the opportunity to travel a lot. And in fact, I'm recording this right now while I'm in Mexico. And actually, I was thinking about something that I wanted to share because I get a lot of questions from so many people about different side hustle ideas. So here's one for those of you out there that are on the go a lot like I am or traveling a lot. When you're staying in your Airbnb on your trips, have you ever thought about how you could be making extra money by hosting through Airbnb while your home is vacant? If you're interested in an extra stream of income, Airbnb hosting is an easy place place to start and it's like giving your home some company while you're away. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. We get lost, man. We get lost in this like desperation and need to be seen from the other person sometimes. But like, I think when we see ourselves, then it makes it much easier for the other person to see us mm -hmm. and then just have fun. Like, and that's the next phase for Emily and I is we're really learning to like have fun. Because when you do as much work as we've done, when you have kids and there's businesses uh -huh. and all of this stuff, you can forget. So yeah. it's making well time. It. It's yeah. making time to carve out fun. The other night we went out under the moon and moved our bodies and just sat there for a second and just like marveled at how magical this universe is and how small we are. And just that. I had, I, had to read, I had to read a script and give notes on something and it was in between things and she was like, she pulled me out of it and we just went and we just looked up mm. and just sat there in silence. And silence can be so filling when there's like a container of love and safety. It just like, it just fills you up because you know that the person you're with has your back and you have theirs and you're together and connected in a way that like nobody will ever understand. Beautiful, man. Yeah. And why do you think most relationships, you know, you've, you've been married again, you've been together for 10 years, roughly, and you've been around a, pe a lot of people who've been in relationships, who've gotten married, who've gotten divorced, who've yeah. stayed married but suffer in the marriage, who've, you know, thrived in marriages. What do you think is the number one reason why people fail in relationships? What's holding them back? The best advice my dad ever gave me about marriage and relationships was that he told me that there were times in their marriage, and they're still married and have an amazing marriage, there were times in their marriage, him and my mom, where he, he didn't wake up feeling like he was in love with her. He, he didn't wake up with the warm and fuzzies and he didn't know if it was going to work. And now he didn't tell me this until right later. I was married. <laughs> uh, this goes back to the vulnerability thing. I'm like, uh -huh. what could that have done for me if I knew? Which is why I put it in the book. Uh -huh. But he said that he had to wake up every day during certain periods and seasons of their marriage, 40 years now, and choose to love my mom. He had to choose it. And that really struck me because love is a verb. Love is an action. Love is a choice. And I think the number one mistake people make is that they choose to stop loving. I think that there are a lot of relationships that could make it, but one of the two makes a choice. And we've been sold this idea, this myth, this mirage of what love looks like. Um, and I think we have to choose. Just like we choose discomfort. Right? We have to, we choose these experiences. We choose to go to the gym. The gym's not fun, but I know I'm going to benefit from going to the gym. Mm -hmm. Right? And love is very similar. You're, you're going to change. Two people, you're not going to ever be the same person you were yesterday. 
And my wife is going to have moments where like she is just on her own journey way over here. And it's not my job to follow her. It's my job to be on my journey with whatever that looks like. But every day, the thing that brings us together is that we're both choosing each other. And I think that we forget to choose. Mm-hmm. And I, I think we forget that love is a choice and love is a verb and love is an action. Do you think love is enough? No. I don't think love is enough. What else do you need I think, to have a thriving I relationship? That, I think that love, love, there's a quote in the Baha'i writings, Abdu'l-Baha, and I'm going to butcher it, Abdu'l-Baha says that, that love is the force that, that binds the planets and the stars. It's like the thing, if, if scientists could have strong enough microscopes to, to keep going and 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 keep going. They would just find love. It's already there. So they keep looking for the thing that's originating the thing and it's already there. You can't understand it. You can't touch it. It's love. But there are scientific principles in addition to love that give the world order, right? that create the atoms and the molecules that move. And I think it's the same thing in relationships. Like you could have love, but there's lots of different kinds of love. Um, so you need to have the, the um, building blocks of a healthy relationship in addition to the love. And I think if you have those things, if anything, it allows the love to, to grow and mm-hmm. to thrive and to survive. Because there's a lot of things out there that are drowning out love. I mean, look, I have great friends who were married and got divorced. They loved each other and they did certain things in their marriage that wasn't okay. Boundaries were crossed, but they found a way to love each other in a different way after they got divorced. That's still love. It's just a different kind of love. It's a love after boundaries were crossed and things that happened that shouldn't have happened and that love has to change. Um, So I think that the necessary ingredients uh, are the three things we talked about, you know, doing the work, reciprocation, safety, Mm -hmm. honesty, communication. Mm -hmm. Like you need all of those things in order for a marriage and a relationship to really work. So no, love is not enough. And yet, and yet, love is all you need. If that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. It's both. It's both. It's not enough, but it is what can keep it together. It's not enough, and yet it's everything. Yeah. And yet it's everything. Mm-hmm. I actually believe that the, the number one ingredient for a healthy marriage, and this is where, you know, I'm sure I'll lose a lot of uh, people who are on this journey with me, but I believe that it's putting God in the middle. I believe that there are so many forces that are trying to distract us and take our attention in this world. And in the Baha'i faith, when you get married, you put God in the middle. Because the idea is that you are two entities, um, but when you come together, there's this third entity that's formed, kind of like the sperm and an egg. Individually, right? Mm-hmm. They're just a sperm and an egg, right. but they have the capacity to be more. And it's when they come together, this new life is created. And it's very much the same thing with marriage. So I believe that it's like putting God in the middle. you coming together with an intention of this marriage is going to be of service to humanity. Mm-hmm. Um, it is our love for something greater than ourselves that brings us together, that it, um, that it allows the marriage, the space to thrive and for that love to thrive. Mm-hmm. I'm curious. I'm going to have to ask you a question that may not make sense for you but because you don't like to measure things. It's not that I don't like to measure things, Lewis. It's that, I, it's that what I'm trying to do is not compare myself to like the end-all, be-all. Like, like, I hear you. The, I hear you. Yeah. Because this is measuring you versus you. That is, I do like to do that. Okay, so what I'm going to do right now. On a scale of one to ten. Yeah. Uh, let's call it the uh, self-love peace scale. Ten for you being ultimate peace and self-love. You don't beat yourself up. You don't speak nasty to yourself. You don't get anxious. You're in peace and you have ultimate self-love at a mm-hmm. ten. One being you're in constant chronic suffering mm-hmm. of... Uh, you know, how you talk to yourself and you don't feel self-love. Yeah, yeah. Where are you currently on that self-love slash peace scale? 
Probably, in this moment. Probably a 6.5. 6.5. What, what was the moment you were the lowest in your marriage and the moment you were the highest mm. on that scale? Can you remember the lowest days, weeks, months, a year, and the, the highest point? Yeah, I think, well, I think I'm at my highest point now. 6.5. I mean, and I'm measuring 10 by, you know, I look at like the prophets of God. I look at, you know, the, I look at the, the folks who are, you know, I spent 10 years telling stories of people who were dying. Mm-hmm. And being with them as they went to take their final breaths and telling, you know, and, and learning from them. And, and there's something that happens to somebody when they're at the end. Um, and I've learned from the dying in a lot of ways. And, uh, and their families and the, the decimation of the ego <laughs> that happens when mm-hmm. you have no place to go except to submit and to accept and love yourself. Um, so I, I look at that as like one day, hopefully, you know, I'm very old, I'm on my deathbed and I'm like taking account of my life and I've reached the point and that's, I'm not there. I'm not, mm. I have a long way to go in terms of healing still. And but What if you I didn't am. have a long way to go? You're telling yourself you have a long way to go, but what if you surrendered and allowed yourself well, to heal. Yeah, and I and that's and be whole and, now. And, and if, if if we could do that, if I could just snap my fingers and go, boom, I am whole and I'm ready and I'm healed, I would do it in a heartbeat. Mm-hmm. It's a daily practice for yeah, me. Yeah. It's a it's that's where meditation and prayer comes in. Mm-hmm. That's where a lot of this work comes in. Um, it's where, you know, even the love I'm getting from my children and like the way they look at me in the must world amazing. comes in. The relationships and how I'm healing the relationships in my own family and like getting closer to my parents now at 38 years old than I ever have been. That's where that comes in. But at the end of the day, it's a self-love thing. It's a recognizing that who I am is enough thing. So, so where I am is a 6.5 today, which is why I'm like, I'm not a 10. I could say I was a 9, but I, I still know that I have a long way to go. Mm-hmm. I've been... Oh man, I've been in the I've been in the I've been in the the cycle of addiction. I've been in the cycle of um, self-loathing and just and 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 I this my wife and I call it this inner critic that just constantly reminds me that like nobody's gonna care. I'm I'm not enough. Uh, I've been I know what it's like to be in that darkness. And just to pretend to be something that I'm not. Um, you still have that inner critic now. Yeah, but I'm learning what that inner critic really is, mm-hmm. and I'm learning how to love that inner critic, which is really just little me. Yes, the little me that didn't get the love that he needed, mm-hmm. wasn't seen the way that he needed to be seen, wasn't safe in the way that he needed yeah. to feel safe. Um, and I'm learning how to have compassion for that little boy. Because that's all it is. Mm-hmm. It's just learning how to love that part of ourselves, learning how to love the, the as our, my old therapist, who's just now a friend, Brad Reedy, would say, our horrible, rotten selves. It's learning how to love that part of ourselves because we're not that. That's not who we are, but that's how we felt at some point in our lives. And that's mm-hmm. what shows up. So when I look in the mirror and I see the parts of myself I don't like, which is what I did for my entire life, I would look in the mirror and I'd be like, oh, my shoulders aren't big enough. Or like, oh, my nose is too big and all this. And I would just find all the things that were wrong with me. That's just a boy that wanted so desperately to fit in and mm. to be liked and to be seen. And he thought that if I looked a certain way, he would be. Or that the girls would like him or all of those things. And now I wake up in the morning and I write down the things I like about my body. Oh, that's beautiful. I literally write down the things I'm grateful for. And never in my life have I ever said I'm grateful for my legs because I can stand up and carry my children up the stairs or I can get on my knees and play with my kids. It was always like, oh, I want strong legs so I can run a 4-4-40. I want strong legs so that I can dunk or so that I can look good in a bathing suit or whatever it is. It was, 
it was always about an outcome, which is why I'm trying to remove myself from like so much outcome um, thinking. And so now it's like, that's what I'm working on. Mm. Oh, no, I'm, I'm a good looking man. Mm. I'm beautiful. I'm okay. Like I just had, a, I had a skin cancer scare. So I had a huge scar. I have a huge scar on my nose. I had um, basal cell carcinoma. It came out of the blue. I had this, I saw this uh, dot and I had a weird feeling. And because I'm doing so much work in my body, I could feel that there was something wrong. Mm. I went to my dermatologist. He said it was nothing. Something wasn't sitting right. I could feel it. I was thinking about it at night. It disappeared. I went back. He did a, he obliged. He, he took a sample and it turned out to be basal cell carcinoma. So we had this huge chunk taken out of my nose. And I was so devastated for a second because I was like, but I'm an actor. And right, I'm right. Gonna, I'm not going to be good looking anymore and this. And I had to like really walk myself back to the point where I'm like, oh, but this scar now is actually a sign of maturity. It's a sign of growth. It's a sign of listening to my body and healing. Self-love. I loved myself enough to go in. Uh And so now I look at it and I'm like, oh, oh, I'm grateful. And it's just, it's the spin. And that's what I'm working on. It's when the critic comes in, how can I spin that? You know, it's interesting you talk about the critic and the spinning. I've learned over the last in a handful of years to be the coach that I always wanted, the positive coach. Yeah. In sports, I had some really, let's say, challenging, toxic, whatever you want to call it, coaches that that led by fear Oof. and screaming and, had the same. and putting you down. Like no matter how perfect you were in every play, if you missed mm. one, then it was like an attack that you you know. And that never worked for me. That always made me feel more anxious, more stressed. And I um, feel that with you talking about it because I know the it was, I know the exact it was awesome, experience. Man. It was not fun, and it made me feel like no matter how good I am on this field or court, no matter how perfect I am, it's never going to be enough if I mess up once because I'm going to get screamed at. Yeah. But then I had coaches that were so loving and gave me the encouragement and gave me the the words and also allowed me to make mistakes and didn't punish me or things like that and allowed me to learn on my own but also guide me that I still think about today. I called one of them this morning actually. Called mm. a coach of mine from 25 years ago. Called him. And um, there was just a great leader, right? Not perfect. You know, he's flawed too but overall beautiful coaching in a positive way. Mm. Not criticism but coaching in a positive way. Thinking about that spin. I was telling you right before this that I went to a seven-day meditation retreat with Joe Dispenza. And you asked me, did I have any kind of like out-of-body mystical experiences? And I said no. And I take it back halfway because I didn't go out of my body, but I had an experience that just came up for me. Because for most of my childhood, I was putting myself down, right? I would, yeah. I was a critic in my mind, in my heart, putting myself down. I'm not enough. You know, whatever I create is not good enough, all that stuff. I'm stupid, I'm, I'm uh, you know, not smart enough, I'm not talented enough, whatever it was, constantly. And I've been doing a lot of the healing over the last few years as well about yeah. letting that go and rewriting the story from the memories of the past. Yeah. And something beautiful happened on one of the last days of this retreat where I had my father passed away earlier this year and I had a, a, a visualization during this process in one of these five-hour meditations and there were some beautiful moments from my childhood with him, and there was also some scary moments, right? Mm. But I had this process where, in my mind, I went back to all the, the memories of my mind from as early as I can remember with my father of, like, playing catch in the backyard and him taking me to the ball games and him, you know, tucking me in every night and saying he loved me, all these different things he did, and just going through every age that I can remember up until you know, my last memory with him, of mm. him being there for me. It was just a beautiful experience. Mm. And I just embraced, okay, here are all the blessings and all the good things that happened from my childhood yes. until now. And then something crazy happened. For whatever reason in this meditation, I went back and did it over again with me standing here now, going back to visiting my younger self. Uh, I get kind of chills thinking about it because I went there I too. and the whole time, I always, ha- I always had this critic inside of me, but there was always someone a voice that was like, keep going, right? I remember going to school and getting mm. in trouble in elementary school and going to the principal's office and saying over and over again, I wish I were dead. I wish I were dead. I would say it over and over again. I wish I were dead. I don't know why I'm here. 
mm. when I always felt like something was wrong with me. So I had this inner critic, but then there was like this voice. So it was kind of like this voice that was like, just make it another day. Just keep treat, you're gonna figure it out. And for whatever reason, I went back as myself now, yeah. and I was there, and it was like, I, went, I saw all the moments where I felt like I was alone and afraid and scared. I got the chills. I'm getting it too. And through it from five years old, from my first memories of sexual abuse until now. And I just flashed through all these moments with me running next to my younger self. Like when I would train alone because no one would hang out with me. I was just like throwing a ball against the wall for hours or running in the backyard alone. I was there with me. Mm -hmm. The adult version of me now is there with me as a child now. And I had this experience where I was just like, you know, lifting him up and putting my arm around him and hugging him and saying, you got this, keep going. And I was like, huh, I wonder if that was that voice. It was. was my future self telling me to keep going because you never know where you're going to create, what you're going to go, what you're going to do in this life. And it was this beautiful experience of my father so and you, then myself. So when I asked you if you had a crazy experience. That was it. Yeah, yeah. But it wasn't like. You said no. But I didn't have this like. That is, that is it. That was it. No, it's powerful. But it wasn't like Martha had where she like left her body and like transcended space and time. you did leave your body. I and did. And you did transcend but space and crazy. time. It was crazy, man. No, but, but it was that, a beautiful healing journey. That is healing. It's huge. That's what it is. Yeah. I, so I don't believe that there's space and time. Mm -hmm. Right? It's a construct of this world. Mm -hmm. Our souls are not bound by that. Mm -hmm. It's infinite. You know, in, in, in the Baha'i writings, we're told that to understand death, we have to look at birth, right? Number one. For every spiritual law, there's a physical counterpart. But to understand how we could have an existence outside of our bodies, after this life, God gave us the sleep state. To experience it, the field. Every single night, yeah. our body, our temperature drops, our breathing changes. We get as close to death as we do, like over the course of our lives, every single night, and then we travel, we dream, right? Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of this kind of stuff happening. My wife had a very similar experience where she was with herself the moment her dad died. Mm. And I believe with all my heart that we can go back, we can time travel through meditation, through prayer, and be there and heal the traumas and the parts of ourselves mm. that need healing. And if you remember the voice, why couldn't that have been you? Could have been me. And, and that's like a whole, I mean, we just want to do a whole other area. But like this is where, this is like, this is where we're going. And it's a really exciting time to be alive because this is... It's very exciting. And, you know, as a storyteller, as a writer, as a director, you tell stories, right? And we, our whole memory is stories. Yeah. And a lot of times, the memories, we tell the story 10 times bigger than it actually was. And sometimes yeah. we think 20 years ago something happened that didn't happen. Oh, yeah. But we've embellished the story to be bigger or more painful than it was sometimes. Or because it was big in your body. At the, time. At the time. And now we explain it in, with different yeah. terms and different things and we, we make it even grander, right? Yeah. And what if we could go back and tell that story in a different way and find meaning from the story in a different way? It doesn't know, mean I that we want that thing. To, it doesn't mean we want it to happen again to us or to others or that yeah. it was okay or these events were fun to experience. But what if we could go back and tell those stories in a different way? All those moments of trauma or pain or wounds and rewrite those stories now and tell them in a different way we don't get a trigger response where we don't feel like, you know, this happened to me. Yeah. Just so that we can have more peace and harmony now. As opposed to living in the past. We can. And I think I think I think we uh, we a thousand percent can. Mm -hmm. I've experienced that right. completely. But I think that also we have to be patient in those moments. Mm -hmm. Because I don't think that it I think that different experiences have different wounds. Um, yep. And healing is a deeply uncomfortable. Nobody talks about like the painful parts. It's painful, of man. And and we need to normalize that. We need to normalize that. Like, oh, okay. Well, we know that there's going to be pain in the gym. No pain, no gain. Right. Well, it's the same thing with healing. Mm -hmm. In some ways, it's the same thing in relationships. And as men, we're taught, oh, let's go into the pain in all these areas, but we kind of disregard it in these areas. 
Like we have enough pain in these areas, but like now I don't want to have, I don't want to deal with discomfort in my marriage. I don't want to deal with discomfort. Like I'm fine. I mean, for a lot of men, this conversation is already too much because, well, we, we're not allowed to be broken. We're not allowed to have traumas or pains or things that need to be healing. We don't even go to therapy. There was like a, a, a number of men, it was like a crazy, what was it? 68% of men don't go to the doctor even though they know something is wrong. Mm-hmm. This was a health line statistic. So we have to even get to the place where we understand that like there are things that need to be healed and make that mainstream. Physically, as well as emotionally. Emotionally and physically. <laughs> yeah. like, there is a whole conversation that needs to happen where we invite men in and say, it is okay that that happened to you and that you have pain there. It's okay that you mm-hmm. have anxiety. It's okay that you are sad. Because the only acceptable thing that as men were allowed to feel is anger. That is a socially acceptable feeling. But what's underneath the anger? All of that stuff. Okay, so let's just say that every, every person, every man in the world then understands that, okay, I didn't have a perfect life. I'm still good. There's some stuff I got to heal. I have some underlying anger issues. I have this, I have this, whatever it is. It's not just going to happen like that. I mean, you've been doing, you've been on this journey for years. Ten, you well, had to do it, it took me 25 years until I started opening up about the sexual trauma. And then it's been a 10-year journey. Yes. That's unlocked new healing. And then right? you did a seven-day retreat. I keep and doing the in work. That se- and oh, in yeah. that seven-day retreat, somewhere probably day four yeah. or five, mm-hmm. you had this amazing experience where you were able to go back and rewrite your history. Uh-huh. It didn't happen like that. Right, it's a consistent process. It's, it's a daily practice, which is why I said I'm at a 6.5. Because I, am, I don't know yet all of the things that are coming up and that I'm uncovering. I've been really surprised. And then there's things where I'm, I've like absolutely done that and I've healed. And then there's things that I'm not quite there yet that I still have a little bit of a trigger with. What's the thing that you feel like if you could let go of, surrender, or release would take you to a whole nother level, spiritually, emotionally, physically? For me, between the ages of 10 and 13, Mm. and the discovery of porn, the situations that I was put in with with specifically another boy um, that I read about in the book, and then what then porn did to me, and what it gave me, and and how I was so um, mesmerized by these images and by these things while feeling so terrible about myself. Shame and, yeah. Shame and, like, you know, I hadn't hit puberty yet. And, and these other boys had, and I was being, you know, and, and being put in these situations. So there, there's a lot of, as I've gone into my work, there's this 10 to 13 period of my life so funny you're saying that where where i am currently on the journey of loving that boy and reminding him that he's exactly where he needs to be that his body is perfect Mm, and that it's exactly where it needs to be um because you know look our our that root chakra is our life force that's our creativity that's not just about sex and like relationships it's about it's everything and when we have wounds there that affect a lot of other areas. Um, so that 10 to 13 mm. area, and then there's also, there's also a period of around 16 that I'm going in and really, really looking at. And, mm. um, and you know, there's parts, of, there's, there's parts of myself that I'm healing that have to do with how I treated other people. Sure. Um, how you react how, to the situations. I know, even like being in relationship with other girls you know, and 17, 18 years old and feeling like I had no power anywhere in my life and finding ways to feel powerful with women and with girls and taking advantage and hooking up with girls that I didn't like and care about and, and going in and reconciling and forgiving, forgiving myself for not being the best guy in my teens and 20s and understanding that, oh, wow, I was doing those things because I felt like I wasn't enough, I felt like I didn't have power, I felt like nobody cared about me, and that made me feel good, that made me feel powerful. So going in and even taking account and, and, and forgiving myself for, 
for the things that I've done is also a part of it, not just the things that happened to me. I think it's all of it. So, so yeah, but, but I could just list a hundred things. You know, I could go and list sure. all the things that I'm working on. But that 10 to 13 and 16 age range, I'm, I'm definitely going into right now. So interesting you're saying that. I'm going to show you afterwards. On my phone, I have a, on my screensaver on my phone, is a photo of me when I was 11. Yeah, inner child work, yeah. Well, I started at five, yeah. and from five to you know ten, and now I'm on eleven to thirteen mm-hmm. as well, because I I feel like that was a, a massive breakthrough in my life, from probably eleven to twelve and a half. There wasn't, you know, again, and our memory does tricks on us, but I remember always feeling like I needed to steal something out of a store, like a candy bar, hmm. right? I wasn't stealing like a bank or something, but like a pack of gum or a candy bar or something, right? Yeah, it kind of gave me that power. Like yeah. I'm doing something. I knew it was wrong, yeah. but I felt like, okay, I have, there's somewhere I can control something, right? Yeah. Or attention. Who knows? Yeah, yeah who to knows? brag it's about like, it. All these yeah. things. All these things that you know, I was doing, and um, and in my you know kind of therapy coaching, that's the stage that I've been working on the last you know three four months is like forgiving that yeah. that version of myself, healing that. It's one of the reasons why anytime I go out to to eat. I feel like I need to pay for everyone. Oh, yeah. And pay, like, I can't, it's hard for me to let anyone pay for a yeah. meal. It's like, I always want to pay and I always over tip. And I'm I like, I just want to pay back yeah. me stealing candy bars when I was 10 and 11, right? And um, and I got in trouble one day. I, I stole $20 from one of my dad's clients at his, his house, my dad's clients. He took me to like a client trip. Mm. And the guy caught me stealing it. And it was probably the mo- wow. most shame I've ever felt, stealing $20 from like a in dad's front, friend. In front of your dad, too. And it was, wow. it was a breaking, it was a, it was a point where I was like, okay, am I gonna go down and go worse or like never do this again? And I was like, I never wanna feel this again. I'm never stealing mm-hmm. anything. And if I think I've stolen something accidentally, I'm like, how do I pay like 10 times more? Yeah. So in a way, like learning that, you know, and feeling that much pain Mm-hmm. At that time, and shame and embarrassment of my dad, and like yeah. what I could have done to his business or whatever, made me say, "Okay, this is not the path." And when I hit thirteen, like everything started to shift. Mm. So those those years were really, you know, meaningful for me too. Middle, but, I mean, that's what this book is about. I mean, middle grade boys. Mm-hmm. Like we don't have like who do we talk to? Who do we have in our lives at 11, 12, 13, 14 when we're going through mm-hmm. these things? I mean, we, we don't. Most kids don't feel safe enough to talk to, talk to their parents, right? We don't feel safe enough to talk to advisors or teachers. Most people don't have older brothers to talk to, and if they are, they're, they're probably not, not telling them the, the right best. things. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So who do we have? And so, I that's why I, that's why I wrote "Boys Will Be Human" because I didn't have that person at eleven or twelve, just like you didn't. Mm-hmm. And what if we had? What if somebody would have told me that all of the things you know, all of the things that are going to happen to me, all the sure. things that that nobody talks about, you know, doesn't. Nobody prepares us for what life's mm-hmm. gonna be like. And yeah. There's yeah. A, there's mm-hmm. a lot of moms that listen to this show uh, and that play the, the reason why we, we bleep out all swearing words is because moms emailed me early on and saying, Can you make sure there's no swear words? Because I play the show for my kids to listen to these conversations in mm-hmm. the car to school and other places. Uh, so I know there's a lot of moms that listen. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you wish every mom knew about raising a young boy? into a healthy, mm. conscious man. First of all, I want every mom to know that they are amazing. I think, I think mothers, mothers, I know there, I'm sure there's a lot of people that say, mothers get all the credit, I think mothers don't get enough. Um, mothers are so important. I believe that we learn empathy and compassion and sensitivity and kindness all of these like quote unquote feminine attributes, which are really not gender specific. We learn them from our mothers normally. I want mothers to know that they don't have to turn their boys into hard men. Um, A lot of moms are like, I don't know how to raise my boy. He doesn't listen to me. Um, I don't know what's happening to him at school. He just shuts down. And I just want them to know that like, it's really hard to be a boy. There's no section at the bookstore for boys. Mm-hmm. There's, no, like, there's no material for young boys because we just say boys will be boys. Like We can't change them. We can't, there's nothing we can do. They're just gonna become who they are. 
And I just disagree with that completely. I want moms to know that your boy is sensitive and sweet and empathetic. He has all those things, but the world's telling him he's not allowed to be. So the more that a mom can create a safe container, a safe space for that boy to feel all the things he needs to feel without trying to fix him, the more I think that that boy will be willing and able to share the things that are happening in his life Mm -hmm. with her. Um, Because it's really hard to be a mom of a boy. You don't have the life experience of what it's like to to go through what we've experienced. Um, It's also really hard, by the way, to grow up and be a girl. It's just hard to be a human being. Let's just be real. But, but, But men and boys don't have a don't have a sense of community where we can share about the vulnerable things that happen to us. And so we feel like we're alone. We feel like we are the only person it's happening to. I'm the only person that gets an erection in third period when I'm in eighth grade. Nobody else does. And so I'm ashamed that I'm embarrassed. I wasn't even thinking about a chick. It just happened. Nobody else gets erections except me. And then you feel shame. You name it. Um, we just go through it. And, uh, and so I want moms to know... Also, I want them, if the, if the boy does have a father or if the mother is married to, uh, to a man, I really think it's important for men to read this book, mm-hmm. um, not just moms. It's written in a way where it's like an amazing companion piece for men and their kids and for you know, mothers and their kids to read together because it creates uncomfortable conversation. Mm-hmm. And it asks you, it prompts you mm. through my stories of like, really embarrassing things that have happened to me mm. to maybe share things that have happened to you. Right. And those, that is where trust is built. Yeah. The sharing of vulnerability, mm-hmm. putting that in the table, saying, hey, son, I remember this thing happened to me. And then suddenly the, the kid's looking at his dad in a whole new way. Mm-hmm. Like, Wait, you're like me? You're not this like impermeable superhero that doesn't have feelings? You're, you know what that's like? And then you're closer. I mean, relationships are like that. Marriage is like that. That's why leading with vulnerability is so Mm -hmm. important. And it's also important, equally as important, to not punish those who display vulnerability. Especially if you are a man in a relationship with a woman. um, uh, To be really mindful, if you are vulnerable, maybe that woman's not used to it. Maybe that's a new thing. Maybe it triggers something in her. But don't just not do it again if she punishes you for it. And for women to be really mindful to not punish their men for being vulnerable. And mothers, mm-hmm. when a boy comes to them and yeah. says, hey, mom, I'm really scared or this happened to me, to not just brush it off because you want to create a strong man. I don't believe that strength and sensitivity are mutually exclusive. I think that real strong men are sensitive. Mm-hmm. I love it, man. Boys will be human. A get real gut check guide to becoming the strongest, kindest, bravest person you can be. I want people to get this for... It's really for parents to read to learn more about kids. Is that really, or is it for well, boys I mean, to read also? It's, re- it's really written for boys, but Which we is understand. hard for boys. To, I, I never read anything. Like, yeah, yeah. Like what boy? What what twelve year old boy no. is going to the bookstore to pick up books? No. However, Very few. I keep hearing from the people that have bought it that the boys are gravitating towards the book. That's great. They're picking it up, and I'm I'm getting messages from moms, and the book's been out for five days, saying I've never seen my boy read anything. Mm-hmm. And he's just and he's wanting to read it because I think we're we're starved for someone to talk to. We're, we want to be seen. We want our experience to be validated, and we want we want guidance. Mm-hmm. And I don't give. The, I'm not an expert. I just share what happened to me, and what I've learned. Well, you've got expertise in your experience. So I've got expertise in my experience. That's great. Yeah. Uh, pick up the book. You can go to anywhere on Amazon or manenough.com or social media for you, Justin Baldoni, everywhere. What's the main place you hang out? Is it Instagram? Is it TikTok now? I see you on TikTok I don't a lot. Know. I, well, see, creating some cool content over there. Yeah, honestly, I just am, uh, I'm, I'm trying to detach from all of it. I know, but, man. But, uh, but I guess, <laughs> but yeah, Instagram and, and TikTok are, mm-hmm. are the things that I'm doing now. Thank God I have help. I hear you, man. Yeah. I hear you, man. Trying to get off that screen as much as I can. What, if uh, you could share one thing with every boy in the world, hypothetical scenario, and and, th- and this is the only thing you could share with young boys, what is that message that you'd want to say to them? 
you're enough. Nobody can take your masculinity away from you. No boy can take that from you. No girl can take that from you. You can't be emasculated. Who you are as you are is enough. You don't have to prove your enoughness to anybody. You're good. You're beautiful. You're sensitive. You're kind. You're human. You're enough. Mm. Sounds like something you needed to hear too back then. I wrote this for me. Right. This work is for me. A 12-year-old version of you. 10, 12, 15, yeah, yeah. 38. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's the same thing I tell myself every day. That's beautiful, man. I love it. Make sure you guys pick this up. Again, Boys Will Be Human. Check it out. Grab a copy for your friends as well. Uh, I think you'll find a lot of value from this, so make sure you guys check it out. Very honest, real book. Justin, I want to acknowledge you for a moment for your constant growth, your constant development, and you being willing to share and reveal these things on your own show, Man Enough, but also here and other places. It's really beautiful to see your journey um, and how you keep evolving. And I think it's something that I, that I hope we all do, myself included, continue to evolve and grow and develop as human beings. And I think the more darkness we experience, that's when we can develop the best. Mm. You know, a, a photograph, uh, if taken out of the darkness too soon, doesn't look good. Doesn't fully develop. So we've got to learn that, that our pain and our challenges are here for a reason, to give us wisdom mm -hmm. and to blossom into something beautiful. I'm sure there's some quote in your Baha'i faith that has something, says better than that. But I think that's part of why we go through challenges, is to find the meaning yeah. and the wisdom later in life to be of service in a greater way. So I really appreciate you showing up and being of service to young boys, to men, to moms, to help their boys grow, develop, and heal from their challenges as well. It's really beautiful, man. I really appreciate um, it. Let me give you that quote. Ready? Give it to me. Calamity is my providence. Outwardly, it is fire and vengeance. But inwardly, it is light and mercy. Mm. Um, I love it. Beautiful, man. <laughs> it's beautiful. Uh, final uh, question. I asked you this before, but I'm curious if it's changed. And so if people want to hear your previous three truths, we'll link oh it up. God, we'll, that was so long We'll ago. link it up in the description so you can go back and listen to that episode and, that, and those three truths. Uh, but again, another hypothetical question. If it's your final day on earth, many years away, you get to accomplish everything. You see your family <sighs> grow into how they're supposed to be and you live a life at a, you know, you get to a 10 on the scale. All these things happen for you. The 10 um, on the healing scale. Yes, exactly. Um, but for whatever reason, it's your last day. We don't have access to your books and your work and your content anymore for whatever reason in this hypothetical scenario. Mm. What would be those three lessons you would share with the world, those three truths that you would share if you can time travel right now into your future and share that? Mm. Oof. I felt that question. Meditate on your mortality. We, uh, we all know we're going to go somewhere. We have a, we have a one-way ticket. And we can choose to pack for that trip or not. And I think we need to meditate on that and not delay, 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 delay. I want to be prepared. So I'm going to develop all of the attributes because I know that's what I'm going to need where I'm going next. Number two, you know, a lot of people say, like, treat others the way you want to be treated. This is just coming to me now. Uh, who knows if I'm going to feel this way in five years or six years. But what's coming to me now as a second truth is treat yourself the way you want others to treat you. And as somebody who um, has been really mean to myself, for the first six, seven years of marriage, my wife would say, be kind to my husband. She'd hear me talk about myself, and she'd say, be kind to my husband. Hmm. And it got me. Um, I think as much as we want to be nice people and good people in the world, I think we have to be kind and good to ourselves. Um, otherwise, it's performative and it's not real. 
and the third. Abdul Baha in the Baha'i writings says if a man has ten good qualities and one bad one, to look at the ten and forget the one. And if a man has one good quality and ten bad ones, to look at the one and forget the ten. And I believe we have to start to see the good qualities in people. I think we're living in a time and in a culture where the one bad quality that people have defines them. We, we heap onto that. Oh, but they did this thing, so they can't be a good person. Or they did that, or that happened. And I think we are disregarding that we are all beautiful and also broken and in need of love. And many of us haven't learned to love ourselves or haven't had the love that we need to grow, like we talked about in those relationships. And I think that we need to start focusing on the good in people. Because when you see the good attributes in people, you see God. And if we see God, then life is complete. Mm, they're beautiful. I think they're different than the last time. I'm sure they are. I can't ever <laughs> say the same thing twice anyways. Final question. What's your definition of greatness? Humility. Humility. Oh, man. Appreciate it. I hope today's episode inspired you on your journey towards greatness. Make sure to check out the show notes in the description for a rundown of today's show with all the important links. And if you want weekly exclusive bonus episodes with me as well as ad-free listening experience, make sure to subscribe to our Greatness Plus channel on Apple Podcast. If you enjoyed this, please share it with a friend over on social media or text a friend. Leave us a review over on Apple Podcast and let me know what you learned over on our social media channels at Lewis House. I really love hearing the feedback from you and it helps us continue to make the show better. And if you want more inspiration from our world-class guests and content to learn how to improve the quality of your life, then make sure to sign up for the Greatness Newsletter and get it delivered right to your inbox over at greatness.com slash newsletter. And if no one has told you today, I want to remind you that you are loved, you are worthy, and you matter. And now it's time to go out there and do something great. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard.